Oh, good morning, everybody. Um, our text this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 26 and 27. If you could please turn there now. Now, I want to tell you a little story. On Monday, this past week, I was driving along Taupoki on my way to collect the kids from school, and I was next to Trafalgar Square, and a car came out of the car park there onto the road in front of me so that I had to brake suddenly to avoid hitting them. Now, I'd seen the driver look at me and then still drive out anyway, so I was very angry. I hooted and I waved my arms around. What do you think you're doing? I shouted out the window of my car. The other driver was looking at me in their mirror as though I was mad. And it was clear that they had no clue that they had done anything wrong. Now the cold fact is that they had. But what about the way that I handled things? I want to ask you some questions about that. Irrespective of what that person had done, do you think that my behaviour glorified God? No, no. What do you think they might have thought if they had known that I was an elder at Wanganui East Baptist? If they were not a believer, do you think they would have liked to have come here? And if they were a believer, well, I think at the very least they'd be very disappointed. So I sinned, and I'm deeply ashamed about that. But what about that anger? I'm sure that every single one of us here can tell a similar story to the one that I've just told you. And we all get angry every day, perhaps more than once a day. It's a very common human condition. Now, we weren't intended to be like this because anger only entered our world when sin came along. And that's why our conscience convicts us so strongly that being angry is wrong. So how can we reconcile what we read about God being angry with the way that we use it? Or know when is it okay to be angry? Or what can we do to control our anger? Proverbs 29.11 says this. It says, A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Now, regrettably, as, as I've just confessed, there are times when I'm that fool. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of that. I want to do, I want to be something better for the glory of God. So, let's have a look at our scripture for today to see if it will help us with some answers. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. Now before we carry on to look at this passage and pull it apart, I think it will be helpful to try to collect some information about anger. Now speaking for myself, I certainly know about the experience of anger, but I don't often spend much time having a really good look at it, trying to understand it. I'd say it would be helpful to do that because often when we expose strong emotions to the cold light of day, we can start to recognise where they come from and maybe we can learn how to control them better. So, here 
is some anger I collected earlier. I got it by listening to some parliamentary debate and then by shouting it to this bottle. It's still in there, so I'll be careful. If I take it off during the service, it'll, it'll come out. Alright, so, now that it's safe in there, what can we learn about it? <laughs> Keep the lid on, too right. Okay, first of all, what does my dictionary say about anger? It says that anger is a strong passion or emotion of displeasure or antagonism excited by a real or supposed injury or insult to oneself or others. Well, there are some interesting ideas in there, like supposed injury and insult to oneself and its opposite, insult to others. They suggest that it's very important to be sure about the facts and who is going to be affected before we get angry. The thing is that too commonly we go pop over the wrong end of the stick and when we get on our high horse over our, self, our sense of self-importance. But neither of those things are going to hold up as good excuses if God were to ask us to explain our anger. However, as we shall see, there are some circumstances where insult to others is a credible reason to be angry. Well, that's the secular and worldly viewpoint of anger, but it still gives us some useful information. Next, next let's have a look at the Bible. Now, when I did a search in my New King James Version for the word anger, I found it there no less than 234 times. And 230 of those are in the Old Testament. There's a very large number, a large proportion of those that speak about God's anger, like this one in Zephaniah 3.8. It says, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all of my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. That's pretty serious stuff. So we can understand then that anger isn't necessarily a bad thing because if God gets angry, then it must be okay. Right? Right? Well, sort of. It's perfectly correct to use God's nature as our model provided that we remember which one of us is holy and righteous and omniscient. Here's the clue. It isn't us. Certainly God gets angry, but he has the unique, I want to stress the unique ability to do so for the right reasons. No human can ever match the Lord's ability, so while we might gain a great deal by using him as our example, we must do so with a lot of caution, because we lack his discernment. So, unfortunately, figuring out what to do isn't as easy as saying, God gets angry, so I can too. It's a bit more complicated than that. What does the New Testament say about anger? Well, in Mark 3, 5, we find this account of Jesus entering the synagogue on the Sabbath and being tested by the scribes and Pharisees to see if he would sin by healing a man with a withered hand. That's what it says. When he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Well, this shows us that 
Jesus got angry too. So it follows that if he is our model for sanctification, then we can know that it's okay to be angry as well. Right? No. Well, here's some other things that our model and example said in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So, it was common knowledge to everyone listening that murder was a serious offence that deserved and merited judgment. But here is Jesus saying that just being angry with someone without good cause is every bit as bad as murder. (laughs) That ought ought to make us pay attention. You know, we might ask ourselves, how many people have we murdered in the last week? Yeah? How do we reconcile these apparently contradictory bits of information? On the one hand, we can see that both God and Jesus are shown in Scripture as getting angry. We know that God never sins, so getting angry in some circumstances must be the right thing to do. And that's certainly what this passage in Ephesians seems to be saying too. Yet on the other hand, here's Jesus saying that anger is the same as murder. And to make things even more complicated than just a few verses, if you quickly scan down the page in front of you, you'll see that Paul says that all wrath should be put away from us. Is this some kind of don't do what I do, do what I tell you sort of speech? One standard for God and one standard for humans? Of course not. There is only one standard. The Lord isn't some humanly manufactured deity who behaves one way today and another way tomorrow. Maybe he will like us if we do good or offer up the right sacrifice. No, he is always the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And because of that we can have absolute confidence in what he says and what he does and that his promise is always true. And this is such a wonderful part of our hope. If God says that our sins are forgiven and we can look forward to eternity with him, with perfect resurrected bodies, then that is what will happen. There isn't any small print, no army of lawyers, no autocratic edict from a tyrant to change the terms. If God says that we are saved, then we really are saved. And we can trust that nothing can snatch that from us. As special as that is, we still have this problem with today's text. What is the difference between God getting angry and us? Why is it okay for him and not for us? Well, it's a little bit complicated and I hope I've explained this okay, but let's start by looking at what Paul writes in Galatians 5. And these will be very familiar scriptures to you. If they aren't, then I'll need to speak to you afterwards. Now, The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, there it is, anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, etc., etc. Okay? Now this text does give us some help. Outbursts of wrath, obviously anger, are identified as a work of the flesh. Yes? We are flesh, created beings. 
God is different to us. His nature, the stuff he is made of is spirit. But Paul also tells us what comes from the spirit. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Yes, all those beautiful things. So it looks as though this understanding we are looking for lies somewhere in the difference between flesh and spirit. And I want to be clear here that I don't mean spirit in the general supernatural sense because humans, we have spirit as well. I'm talking about spirit with a capital S, the God stuff, the Holy Spirit. There's something about that which will inform us about how to properly express anger. But for now I'm going to ask you just to hang on to that thought because we're going to go back to the text and in examining that along the way we should get our answer. When we read, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, we should be aware that Paul hasn't made this up as a really good speech on the spur of the moment. Because he's actually quoting directly from Psalm 4.4 and it also alludes to Psalm 37.8. Okay, Psalm 4.4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. And Psalm 37.8 says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. So this is established scriptural advice that Jewish hearers would have been well aware of. The important part is that these passages in Psalms don't just warn us to avoid anger, but they also give us some good advice for dealing with it. Note the second part of both Psalms. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still, and do not fret. It only causes harm. Yes, God has told me to go to bed. I'm sorry I couldn't come to work today, sir. I was angry, and God told me to stay in bed and meditate. Yeah, right. Seriously, though, this is good advice. I don't know about you, but personally, I have this tremendously unhelpful tendency to go back to events that have made me angry so that I can enjoy them all over again. I can't really say why I do it. Maybe it's some attempt to convince myself that I was right and justified in being angry and in the way that I handled it, although... I know that in my heart of hearts, I'm not. Of course, I think about all the clever things that I would have said and done that would have made me the winner. But actually, I just make myself upset and angry again, and again, and again, pointlessly. The repetition is the problem. We see here this word fret. Fret means to rub, to wear away by friction, to gall or to gnaw away. It's not a radical process of removal, but just this gradual and continuous motion, on and on, that over time can have the most damaging of results. You might think that a piece of silk cloth, for example, is wonderfully soft and smooth. But just try taking a piece and rubbing it on the inside of your wrist for an hour or two, and see if you don't end up with a bleeding sore. That's what going back over angry moments will do to your heart. 
It will make it raw and sore. And we definitely don't want that to happen because it will ultimately poison our whole being. And then that makes it easy for Satan to slowly lead us away into sin. It's very important for us to deal with what's working away inside us because it's always going to show up on the outside. And that's going to affect not just us, but others. It's what we read about in Luke 6. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. What if your heart isn't abundant? What about if it's raw and sore and filled with anger? And this is why it's so important to deal with anger properly, because if we don't, it has very serious consequences for our daily lives. And these are a great deal more than just anger being sin. If left unchecked, anger will breed more anger. It will build up and build up until it fills our hearts. If we live with it and we don't actively deal with it, angry and hostile words will soon be the only things that come out of our mouths. And consequently there will be a terribly corrosive effect on our relationships because no one wants to be around an angry person. And worst of all, our witness to God's goodness and the gospel will be completely devalued. The problem is that When we get that angry feeling, it's often so hard to dislodge. What is needed is something else to displace it and fill up that space within our hearts and minds. Why not take the psalmist's advice and meditate on something else? How about chocolate cake? Mmm. Now, although thinking about chocolate cake might be distracting, it may also cause us to take some out of the tin, and pretty soon we will have to buy some bigger clothes. How about something that has no fat or sugar, but plenty of nourishment and substance, something that will feed us not just for smoker, but eternally? How about the Word of God? Psalm 119.10 promises this. Your word I have hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. The principle that we gain from this verse is that that if we hide God's word in our hearts, it will help us not to sin against him. So in today's case, it will help us to control anger. But this verse tells us a whole lot more. This is a little bit of an aside, but it's a very important principle here and I don't want to go past it. Sin is never a thing that happens in isolation. We don't just sin and then it kind of hangs around in the atmosphere and then gradually fades away. No. Sin is real and active and it works against God. It has an immediate effect on him. It's like pushing him. He hates it passionately and he must deal with it. And so it always has consequences for the sinner. And these are immeasurably worse than we can ever imagine because if we have not taken God's precious gift of forgiveness bought by Jesus dying on the cross to be our Lord and Saviour, then when we die, we will be punished. We 
will be condemned to spend eternity in hell. And that's not party central, folks, like it's made out to be. It's pain and despair centre. Not for a finite amount. I'm not going to get out of here in five minutes. We will be condemned to spend eternity in hell. So if you're hearing this and you know that I'm talking about you, then I beg you not to turn away like Pete was talking about earlier. Act and act now. Confess to God that you are a sinner. Promise to try not to sin again. Take Jesus as your Lord and he will save your life forever. You know, I said just now this was an aside. And although it is because it's off our topic, actually this moment is the point of the whole sermon. I might open up this passage to you in the most exquisite and exciting way, but if you have not heard the gospel, if you do not know the hope of salvation, then it's all going to be just hot air, a failure. We must not forget that Jesus is the focus and the reason for us being here today. All glory to him. So let's go back to hiding God's word in our hearts. If we do this, how might that work? Well, by way of answer, here's the scenario. I'm in my car and I'm late to collect the kids from school, but driving that long drag down some parade, there's someone in the way. As the days drag by, should I continue to fret about the inconsiderate twit who's doing 45 k's an hour when I want to do 50, thereby encouraging an ungracious and unforgiving and therefore sinful attitude in my heart? Or should I rather start thinking, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Let's read this together. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do you feel after reading that? Yeah, Do you feel better? Yeah, it's great. We do have the option of what to think about. Why would we want to think angry things when we could be thinking about green pastures and still waters or one of the hundreds of other helpful encouraging passages that the Holy Spirit has set for us in Scripture? One thing's for sure though. There's no question that it will work. But first we have to put in the hard yards and open up our Bibles and commit some good verses to memory. As a start... I've I've put some great verses into your sermon notes, but I can't learn them for you. You need to take those away 
and try to commit them to memory. Will you take up this challenge? Will you try to do that? I would love to hear how it goes for you. And the great thing, of course, is that Scripture that dwells in our hearts and minds will help us with so much more than just anger. Because pretty much anything that you can think of will benefit from the right verse. Why would you want to hobble when a good, solid walking stick is right there at hand? We still haven't answered this question yet about whether, when it is okay to get angry. And it seems that this isn't a modern problem because Aristotle said, anyone can become angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not easy. And our text here in Ephesians doesn't make things much clearer actually because translator's opinion is varied on exactly how to express what was written in the Greek. For example, some of them don't make anything of the part about being angry as an imperative, a command. And I've got some examples up here for you to show the differences. I've got some examples up here to show you the differences. There we go. Okay. So we start off with, when angry, do not sin. And we end up with, be constantly angry with a righteous indignation and stop sinning. So, I've tried to arrange these in such a way that you can see that there's a wide range of emphasis. And this inconsistency of translation is really confusing, as are the various commentaries. They say helpful things like, it is usually agreed that the first imperative in this formulation should be construed as having concessive force, and that, in the syntax, parataxis is employed instead of a subordinate concessive clause. Does anybody understand that? No, I didn't think so. And the fact that I can't understand it says that there's no way that I'm going to be the one who resolves these differences. So I'm not even going to go near those waters. But I do think that there is some very sound and useful middle ground, and that's what we'll talk about now. So, earlier we spoke about both God and Jesus being shown as legitimately angry in Scripture. And from this we can understand that it's not necessarily sinful to be angry. So what are the circumstances in which God becomes angry? Well, they are when wrong has been done against himself or another person. In other words, the circumstances when it is right for him to be angry. So it is righteous anger that we are reading about in these texts. Now, righteous anger is a thing that is measured. When God is angry, he is never out of control. Whatever he does as a result of his anger is reasoned, and it is perfectly appropriate. And So when we read in our Bibles this be angry, we should be sure that it's the righteous kind that's being recommended. Be angry when God is made fun of in adult cartoons. Be angry at the corruption of a child. Yes, be angry at those who propagate perversion and sin. However, human anger is often emotion 
of malice, jealousy, resentment, vindictiveness or hatred because of personal wrongs. It's unmistakably a very different kind of anger that must be controlled and avoided because it is sin and it leads to sin. When we read, be angry, it's not that human kind of sin. When we understand that, we will see that is why there is no contradiction between this verse and verse 31 that I spoke about earlier, or for that matter with any of the other instruction that we get from Scripture about not getting angry, because righteous anger is not the same as uncontrolled and human anger. Righteous anger is of the spirit, and uncontrolled anger is of the flesh. But it isn't that easy. Because given the volatility of human emotions, it isn't difficult to move from the good kind to the bad kind in a very short space of time. And I believe this is why Paul has written in this apparently contrary way. Be righteously angry. Yes, he says, but be careful. Don't fall over the edge into bitterness and rage because then you will sin. So this can be our guide. What is our motivation for being angry? Does it have that that volatile element to it where it might blast off at any moment like a firework? If it does, well, it's time to start thinking your very best calming psalms. If, however, we are angry because God's reputation is being smeared, well, then we'd probably be in the right place. But we'd better be careful to be measured and controlled about what we say and do next, lest we do something foolish and let righteousness become riotousness. Now, we often read in Scripture about anger being kindled, which gives us the picture of a fire being started. The thing about a fire is that properly managed, it's a tremendously useful thing. It keeps us warm, it cooks our food, it lights our path. However, being mindful of the pictures that we're seeing from Australia right now, look at the damage that gets caused when it gets out of control. We might think that anger is alright. After all, we're human, everybody gets angry. That's a general picture out there in the world, isn't it? But we need to think hard about that attitude. Is it appropriate for those who profess Jesus as Lord and Saviour? Is our angry behaviour glorifying to God? Does it help with the unity of the church body? Will anger and angry behaviour draw those who don't believe in Christ? Well, of course not. And that indicates that all of us have got some work to do in this aspect of our lives. And this is very close to home for me. Those of you who know me well, (laughs) you will know that I'm very much a work in progress on this matter. This is something I really struggle with. So this has been a tremendously challenging sermon to prepare. And I want you to know I'm not preaching at you. I'm standing with you and God is speaking to me as well. It's a great blessing then that we do have a forgiving and persistent Father in heaven who won't give up on us. He is faithful and will complete his work in us. But as always, 
I want to remind you that this isn't a free ride. We have responsibilities too. To work with God to become more like Christ. And it's in this light that we consider the next path of verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. The trouble with the New South Wales bushfires is that they've had the chance to rage now for days. Their sheer size and ferocity makes it exceptionally difficult to deal with them. Now I was looking on the internet for some information about them and I read in one report that the total fire perimeter is 1,600 kilometers. Okay, it's 1,600 kilometers. Now, granted that's not all on fire, but it is the area that the firefighters have to contend with. So I thought, how big is that? So if we, if we consider that that was a circle and we used our, our pie sums, it turns out to be an area of 203,680 square kilometers. And I was so big I had to check my sums about three times. Does it sound like a lot to you? 203,000 k's? Well, to put that into, into real perspective, the area of the entire North Island is just a little bit over half of that. Okay? That's a big fire. Now, how much would it take to start a fire that would set our whole island ablaze? Well, it's not much actually. One match or one spark in the wrong place would do it. But at that exquisite moment, it would also only take the sole of a boot or a shovel full of soil to put it out. So this then is the wisdom of Paul's advice. Do you want to have a serious problem with anger? Okay. Allow it to fester. Treasure and fan the blaze over weeks or months or years. Add fuel to it regularly by finding new stuff to get angry over. Use an accelerant like jumping to conclusions or unreasonable expectations and then stand back because... Now we're going nuclear. Friends, there is a tremendous amount to be gained by dealing with anger in its day. It may seem to be humiliating or frightening to have to go and make peace with someone we've been angry with, or maybe has even been angry with us, but the potential for far, far worse is division. Sorry, far, far worse division is significant if we don't. Just like that fire, it will take so little to put anger away when it is young. But let it grow and we might need an army of help to deal with it. So, if you have been riotously angry recently, go and sort it out today. Now, that sorting out has a number of practical aspects. Obviously, one big step is to go directly to the person who has been wronged. But we have also sinned. So we must also go to God and in the spirit of repentance ask for forgiveness. And my counsel would be to make this your very first step. At the same time, since you are anticipating a difficult meeting, ask the Holy Spirit to help you to behave in a way that is honoring to God. You might have to ask him to help you to be humble and patient because one of the things you might find is that the other party is just as mad 
and might be unwilling at that moment to accept an apology. So if you are sincere about making amends, you may have to patiently allow the other space to give you a bit of a verbal pounding. But try not to stick your fingers in your ears though, as it may go badly from there. As difficult as it may be to do so, face-to-face anger management is always best. This is because our body language is very important in serious conversations. I can't tell you how many emails and telephone calls I've had turned to custard just because the bloke on the other end misinterpreted what I said. And I'm sure we've all had these experiences. So, if it's at all possible, make the effort to physically meet. There are some rules to apologies as well, and these might seem to be obvious, you might know them, but I think they're always worth repeating. Never say, I'm sorry, but. I'm sorry that I shouted at you, but you did such a stupid thing. I'm sorry that you're so angry and I shouted at you, but I've been feeling tired and emotional recently. That but word says that you aren't really sorry. Actually, you're just going through the motions. The only sorry thing about such an apology is that it's a sorry excuse for one. Either you are or you aren't. If you are, then there are no buts. However, if you aren't sorry, then you shouldn't apologize because that's a lie. But one would need to be at least 100% sure that you were right in every aspect before you took that position. And I wouldn't expect that to happen very often at all. If you're on the receiving end, be gracious about accepting an apology. It's very important not to look away and mumble something insincerely like, oh, thanks, that's okay. It's much better to look someone in the eye and say, thank you, I accept your apology and I forgive you. And in the same way as there are no sorry buts, there should also be no forgiven buts. I forgive you, but you know you really shouldn't have told me that I was stupid. And what about when you forgot to feed the dog two months ago? That's not healing forgiveness. And it won't be received as such. Our final verse today is very simple to understand. We are counseled in verse 27 to not give place to the devil. Some translations say that we shouldn't allow the devil a foothold. I like that. It's easy to see how anger that affects all of us so often will give Satan a chance to climb above our hearts and ride us for all he is worth if we don't deal with it properly. We know from scripture that humans are not equipped to face Satan in a straight fight, so we're going to have a lot of trouble dislodging him once he's got those spurs dug in. And that is why it's so important not to give him an opportunity at all. This is why we should take seriously what we have read today. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let us pray.